0: Hello and welcome to the Private Capital Podcast, I'm Joe Riley. Our guest today is Mark Machin, CEO and co-founder of Opto Investments, a technology platform that provides independent investment advisors access to private markets. Mark was previously CEO of CPIB, the $500 billion Canadian pension fund, and before that was a banker with Goldman Sachs in Asia for 20 years. He has degrees in medicine and surgery from Oxford and Cambridge. I really enjoyed this conversation with Mark, a greatly respected LP who has already had two great careers before starting Optip. We discussed the development of the Chinese market in the 1990s, how banking has changed in Asia and at Goldman, the Canadian pension model, how to navigate the investment world from one of its top perches, and the burgeoning world of technology-enabled private investing. You grew up in Cheshire. Where did you
1: go to school? I went to a minor public school called King's School Chester. The one good thing about it, there was several good things. It was an exam sweatshop, so it taught you how to taught you how to pass exams, which is useful back when exams mattered and continuous assessment didn't matter. I, I was all about swatting for exams and then not doing much in between. And then the second thing it was good at was rowing. It was punched well above its weight, crew, and uh, despite being a pretty small school. So I think School relative to an Eton I don't know it's a, it's a fraction of the size. I mean, it's between a fifth and a tenth of the size of, of Eton But yeah, certainly in my time, we could we could race them and beat them. We had a decent chunk who went to Oxford and Cambridge. So I was lucky enough to pass the exam to go to Oxford and yeah, selected to do medicine at the time. I thought there was. The two greatest things I could see in my little world in Manchester were being a lawyer and being being a doctor, I hadn't heard of being a banker other than a high street banker. I hadn't heard of investing. I thought law was a bit dry and boring, and I thought medicine was pretty interesting. So I went off to Oxford to study medicine. So I did th- I had three years of undergrad medicine, which was really fascinating. And I did a year of research in Australia, and then I went to Cambridge to do my clinical medicine and
0: change the scene. Any specialty you were interested in?
1: So, what I did in research was related to the environmental causes of birth defects. And I'd always been interested in pattern formation, the developmental biology, developmental neurobiology, neurology. And then I, I did some work on infectious disease and actually did some research, some desk research on leprosy. So, at one point, I could be, I was one of the experts on the mechanism for the transmission of leprosy, which is pretty obscure. <laughs> and, but amazingly, back there were about 12 million people in the world were leprosy, and it's completely curable by antibiotics. It's very light tuberculosis, less infectious, but it's a similar bacteria. Anyway, so I ended up, I did a little bit of study on that, so that, that was one area. But then finally, immunology. Immunology was my professor at my college, was an expert on immunology and really passionate about immunology. And I think he was on to some of the great themes that are even now just becoming really important in therapeutics. Yeah. So that's work. what I did. Yeah. Oh, really, really interesting. Yeah. But when I joined, I used to, I treated my last patient on a Friday. I joined Goldman Sachs on a Monday morning. I had a weekend of transition and i when i joined goldman in europe in 91 there was no healthcare team it was too early we actually pitched a couple of biotech deals lost them and there was no specialized healthcare team it was even though i'd studied medicine and had a medical background and when i went to asia in 94 after that they they did start a healthcare team but i missed that so i think I started about 95 96 and in asia it was way too early again So I actually, when I was running investment banking in Asia for Goldman, I started the healthcare team, but I was already too senior to be a specialist in it.
0: 90s in China, a bit of a Wild West, but you had some heavy hitters out there as well. There was Hank Paulson, there was John Thornton, Mike Evans, Brian Griffiths, who did the privatization under Thatcher. At the time, the debate was over how much time to spend on the Asian Tigers versus China, which was still a backwater. What can you tell us about the 90s in Hong Kong? Yeah, you got good good intel on what was happening back then. That was
1: really the sort of characters you're, you're mentioning there. They were John Thorne is still heavily involved. see Hanks still heavily involved, and Mike's very heavily involved. Because Mike's still at Alibaba. Yeah, Lord Griffiths was in the early days of the work back in the early '90s when China was considering creating a capital market. So, '89 to '91. They were considering how to form a capital market in 91 to 93. They were considering how to IPO state-owned shares. And yeah, Lord Griffiths who made an advisor to Mrs. Thatch was involved in helping them think about privatization and how to take state-owned companies and list them in public markets. And so that was when I was still in London back at that point. In 94, I went out. And at that point, basically, two things happened. One, Goldman Sachs lost a lot of money in 94. It was a terrible year. In fact, that part of the way that Goldman lost money was on similar trades to how bearings went under. And fortunately, Goldman had a little bit of a bigger balance sheet. It was still a scary time if you were a partner of Goldman at that time. You literally asked to write a check into Goldman. We made a partner in 94 because, you know, the balance sheet was so wobbly and there was external capital that came in to prop it up. And some people panicked and left the partnership in 94. It was what triggered the desire to become a public company with a much more solid balance sheet, which happened eventually in 99. And then the second thing happens with respect to China was the massive rise of interest rates because inflation had taken off and it basically shut down all financing from China in 95, 94, 95. And so there was no business to do in China. It was basically We had to do business elsewhere. And in fact, Indonesia was the hot market, some of the Southeast Asian countries. And so I spent a lot of time in Indonesia in 95, 96. And it was only late 96, 97 that I actually really got involved in China. I mean, that's when China came back and the capital markets were back late 96, the red chip bubble, 97, so seminal China mobile, China telecom IPO.
0: Goldman had to outcompete the established British banks that were already in Hong Kong, as well as their American competitors. How did Goldman manage? Yeah, it was tough. People forget this in the midst of time,
1: so thank you for allowing me to recall these points. But one one the thing I had to explain, one of the things we had to do was explain, number one, what an investment bank was. We put pictures together saying, this is what an investment bank is. And then secondly, explain who Goldman Sachs was. People never heard of Goldman Sachs. And at the same time, because Goldman had that wobble in 94 with the capital base, the, our competitors, the British and other US banks were running around saying, forget it, Goldman said, it's moving out of Asia. It's basically got no money left. It's going to shut down the Hong Kong office and it's out of here. So it was not easy. There was a lot of dissonance and, and lack of understanding about what we did. Most people in Asia thought a bank lends money. where's your checkbook where are you going to lend us some money and so explaining what we did and advice and underwriting was was a lot of effort and building credibility building understanding we weren't golden socks or goldman sachs s-a-c-k-s we were goldman sachs and storied investment bank 150 year history and and this is what we do and that that was a lot of what we were doing
0: Paulson notes in his memoir that at the time the norm was in China was rule of men, not rule of law. He also noticed m- most of the assets they saw were very hairy, to say the least. How did you folks navigate that world? It was capital market was tiny.
1: The state owned assets had rudimentary accounts. So there was a huge amount of work, huge amounts of work done with first class international law firms and accounting firms who are basically building the books and building the accounts and historical accounts for these companies. And it was massive amounts of work that could take years to prepare companies for public market. The private sector was rudimentary as well. Back then, there weren't there weren't big private companies and there weren't a lot of substantial private companies. There were no, no billionaires in China in the nineties. First billionaire, I guess, was around maybe late in 2000. I mean, that was quasi SOE, So it was was challenging finding the companies that you could, I think you could do sufficient work and actually get to IPO. And I think the thing that was game-changing was this China Mobile IPO, where effectively we were given a mandate to select the assets and create the company, which was pretty extraordinary. Basically, we were told the goal was to IPO a company using telecom assets that will create an IPO of $2 billion and will happen in 1997, around the time of the handover of Hong Kong. And that, was, that, that as far as I recall, was the mandate. And just to be clear, these yeah. assets were not exactly... So one of one of the key decisions then was, okay, so which assets do you go to the, the parts of the telecom industry that have been around for years, the wireline telephone, or do you go for something that's fresh and new that's only just starting, basically, and being rolled out? And we decided to do that because we have less legacy issues, and we could create cleaner corporate structures, more discreet separation of the business. So we went for the mobile business. And rather it was discussion about satellite, it was discussion about fixed line, there was discussion about mobile. But mobile was very early stages at that point. And we took two of the most developed mobile businesses, packaged them together into one company, created a senior management team, and literally were dropping in the CFO in August ahead of a September launch of initial launch of the IPO and training him on what, okay, here are all the accounts for the company. This is what you need to get your head around and to be able to stand up in front of an international investor audience and say, these are my accounts. I understand them. And so we literally had them in a hotel in Shenzhen for day after day after day, just drilling and drilling management
0: team on their company. Who were your target buyers? Who did you hope were going to, what institutions did you hope were going to come in? So we wanted a broad base of support
1: from real top quality international institutions who understood the telecom industry, understood the mobile telephone industry, which was relatively early stage, and would provide corporate governance, discipline, scrutiny for the emerging state-owned sector in China. And they wanted it to be a company that would be able to hold its own on the world stage and be able to, like Deutsche Telekom had IPO'd in 96, just before. And it was, the Deutsche Telekom team had gone to China and explained how their IPO had happened and all the things they'd learned through this. And they wanted to be basically on the same stage. And there was a big push at the time for reform and opening up, which you hear that phrase all the time still today. And to use this as a stimulus to reform the way the state-owned enterprises were run and how the productivity of the economy overall and it was before WTO and so there was a big push to one well, get into WTO but also to use that as an impetus to reform and increase the competitiveness of, the, of these sleepy SOEs. So that was the goal. So we wanted proper international institutions, the best in the world to be able to invest. And then at the time, we caught a huge wave of support from private wealth in Hong Kong and Asia as well, who said, well, this is going to be really interesting. There's a potential, Okay, they've got two provinces. There's a potential over time to inject all the other provinces in China one by one. And there's probably value creation that's going to happen around that. And this could be a really attractive investment. So it became an incredibly hot IPO. In the end. And we raised four and a quarter billion dollars rather than two billion dollars. And the government was delighted, and we were off to the races. So. It was only the second IPO that Gorman had ever done in Hong Kong. People forget the, first? the time. The first? first one was one called Asia Sat. And that was that was a Western China collaboration on satellite communication. It's an ongoing business. It was IPO'd at a very high price and then was taken private at one point, and it maybe I'm not sure what the state of it is right now, but it's been public and private back and forth for a while. But it operates satellites. So it was a utility business, but we sold it at a big growth, with a lot of growth potential, which was something that was difficult for them to deliver at the time.
0: 98 was no picnic to witness here in New York. What was it like when the dominoes were falling around you in Hong Kong in 98? That was extraordinary. It
1: was really extraordinary. It's one of the things I remember today when people, was last year where people said Hong Kong's finished. It's the end of Hong Kong. I remember in August 1998 when the monetary authority was stepping in and buying every single share in the market to support the market going, which was in a catastrophic downward spiral. And never seen anything like it. Government literally stepping in and buying every single share that was for sale in the index. At the end of that day, there was just hushed silence on the floor. And I remember the research and sales team gathering together and one of the most experienced research analysts in Goldman in Asia said, Hong Kong's finished. We should just pack our bags and leave. This is the end. There's no way it's coming back from this. It was incredibly somber. People thought that was it. Never going to be any business in Hong Kong ever again. It, fortunately, didn't prove to be the end. And one of the really amazing, one of the most interesting deals i ever had the pleasure of working on was they, they had an incredibly idea of they, they got all the banks to compete on ideas for what we should do with these holdings of shares that we're now stuck with. And they were stuck with, I think, about $5 billion. It was a lot of money back then of shares. And maybe it was even maybe $7 billion. We pitched an idea to do something that people never really heard of at the time called an ETF. And it was probably, so the spiders existed, but there were no ETFs in Asia. Nobody really heard of, heard of ETFs. but So it was an innovative idea for us to come up with. And certainly an IPO of an ETF had never been thought of before in the world, but definitively. So we decided to package these shares into something called the Tracker Fund and do an IPO of it. And then to share it with the people of Hong Kong as well. So you could we created something called Bonus Shares, which I'd learned through privatizations around the world, where if you held the Tracker Fund for one year, you get a certain number of extra shares. And if you held it for two years, you get another bunch of shares. So it was a way of... And there was also a little discount for the citizen of Hong Kong as well over what institutions paid. And we, we even did TV and radio advertising. We, had, we broke all the mold on what was permitted in terms of promotion of this IPO because it was really about sharing the wealth of Hong Kong back with Hong Kong people. It was an amazing experience. It was both innovative and it was, it was really special for bringing Hong Kong back from near death to making people feel... That Hong Kong was alive again, and they actually owned a piece of it. We also created a mechanism that allowed the HKMA to sell down all the rest of the holdings over time without disturbing the stock market. It's called a tap mechanism. I won't get into the technicalities of it. We was basically using structure of the futures market, and they could basically create more of these ETFs over time and just issue them into the market for free. So it was an amazing mechanism. We created the IPO, and then they sold all the rest of it down over time. And
0: track of funds still exist today. So you're at Goldman for 20 years. Do you feel like the firm changed perceptively after 99?
1: Like the firm got bigger and any organization that gets bigger becomes less connected, more of a corporation rather than a collection of people. The magic of a place like Goldman is the, the special people and the camaraderie between the people and the sense of the ownership that you have. It's the magic of any special companies where you really feel like you and the people you work with own stuff and where you can pick up the phone and call someone in the Frankfurt office at 2 a.m. and say, hey, I really need help on this. And they will help you at 2 a.m. And it's because you're part of the same team and you're all competing, you're all the same goal, you all wanna make Goldman the best what you do. And there's no question about, you don't ask the question, you know why. You're all part of the same sports team that as something gets bigger and people get less connected then it's just inevitable that deteriorates a bit I think part of the the special thing they did was keeping a partnership so even though it wasn't the only ownership of the firm which it was before pretty much other than the private capital that helped out in a couple of the downturns did at least keep some special feel, some aspirational tier, so you're part of that club with special supercharged compensation and special information flow, and that was that was something that was really clever to keep in place. And while everybody was the, you went not a partner at the time of the 1999 IPO, I, I made partner in 2002, which was just a bit for, if you made partner in 2000, you were really miffed because you just missed it. And you missed the biggest bonanza in investment banking history. Making it in 2002, I was only slightly miffed that I missed it because I knew it probably wasn't realistic for me to have made it in 99. But yeah, but it, you still felt that it was something special. I still remember the the call that I got from Thornton telling me that I was a partner. Any good John Thornton stories? John's a phenomenon, as still is today. And John was just traveling. As you say, when you say he's in Asia, he had an office and an apartment in Asia, but he was on a plane. And he just used to, we lived on voicemail back then. We didn't have, Goldman didn't have email till 97, I think, maybe 98. But we lived on voicemail. The classic John Thornton voicemail would be John Thornton, it's 3 a.m. I'm flying over Moscow and, I, and I've got these 15 things that I need doing. And and so, yeah, he was constantly traveling, constantly on a plane somewhere. And John's special guy. John had a desire to be close to the most important people in the capital markets in the world, was I think probably still is quite effective at that.
0: So you made a big switch when you went to CPIB. How did you initially get your head around it?
1: so. The way I got there, I've told this story a few times, is I didn't expect to spend 20 years at Goldman. When I joined, it was something that had a lot of curiosity for finance and business. I was starting my medical career. I knew if I didn't take a look at business and finance at that point, I never would. I thought I'd duck out of medicine for a couple of years, get get some exposure. I thought realistically I'd be back in medicine in two or three years. I was... Just, I absolutely loved my time at Goldman. I had an amazing career, so many interesting and fascinating experiences, both in Europe and in Asia. And the thing that I always told headhunters was, the next job I want to do doesn't need to be in finance. I don't want to go to any other bank. I didn't even, on the investing side, I wasn't that excited about going to any other investment vehicle at the time. And, but what I said is if you get Bill Gates to call me, I'll join the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation any day. I want, having done something in medicine and which was really good for the world and then spent 20 years in finance, I thought I was doing meaningful stuff. I really had a little bit of guilt that the next thing I should do is, is go back and do something really good for the world. And I got a lot of admiration for what the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, what Bill Gates built there. Obviously all the financial headhunters in Asia who always calling me said, we don't have any contact there. That's not realistic. But we have this. Here's another fund, or here's another bank. Anyway, this woman called me one day, who and she said, "Mark, I've got this opportunity for you. It's not the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but if you took on this job, you can wake up every day knowing you're doing something worthwhile for 20 million people. How does that sound?" I said, "Okay, Alice, you got me. You got me interested. That's really interesting." And. She's, I said, what is it? She said, it's a pension fund. I said, that really doesn't sound very interesting. She said, this is not like any other pension fund. This is purely investment organization. It's incredibly dynamic. They invest across the spectrum in all sorts of interesting strategies. They're very global. And you've got to meet the guy who's going to be the next CEO because he's he's a really interesting guy. And I said, okay, all When right. I'm next in in Hong Kong. And if he's there, we can meet up. And so I met my predecessor, Mark Wiseman, and we really hit it off. He's just phenomenally bright, talented, interesting guy, very ambitious for CPIB. And I thought, okay, this is, this is amazing. R- really interesting what he's talking about. I met the rest of the senior team. They were all really experienced, thoughtful people in their investing strategies. And the more I thought about it, I thought maybe this is the thing that for, while it's not, it's not healthcare, it is doing something worthwhile for 20 million people and using some of some of the experience that i've got in finance over the last 20 years so i decided to take the plunge and move and 20 years was a nice round number and so i moved over in march 2012. how did you think about the famous canadian pension model? i think that the secret source of the canadian model there's really two bits to it one is an ability to pay employees. So not what you can make at a hedge fund or a private equity shop, but I could pay employees at CPIB up to at the time Goldman managing the level. And that was enough to get quite high quality talent around the world, particularly when you have this amazing pool of capital that is consistently growing. You no redemptions, nothing required. So you have that pool of capital that you can rely on to invest and build your investing career. And for a lot of people who love investing, that's nirvana. And particularly if you've been unlucky and you're investing, you've been part of a hedge fund that's blown up or part of a private equity fund that's struggled to raise the next fund, then, but through no fault of your own, joining a fund like that is pretty attractive. But then in Canada, we got the pick of the crop because there was not a lot of competing private sector funds in Canada, the pension funds picked up the top talent in investing. So we could build really excellent teams around the world. I think that's probably the number one secret source compared to a lot of the government led funds and state led funds around the world. The other thing is the governance, the independence, which on the whole lets the board and management team have a lot of free reign on how you invest board was pretty independent from government and from political interference on a deal-by-deal or strategy-by-strategy investing direction. And the management team had a lot of free reign to define what to invest in, how to invest, where to invest. Investing money is hard. It's always difficult. Taking risk in order to get return is always difficult. But doing it where you've got some political interference coming in on a year-by-year basis, markets are down, oh, my God, you got to do something because why did you do all those dumb things? Or markets are up, oh, you got to buy more. That sort of pro-cyclical behavior that happens with well-meaning but short-term government oversight is really problematic. It makes it very difficult to manage a pool of money. And then if there's other well-meaning, less informed people around the table that you can influence investment strategies and behavior it's really high groups and labor unions these types of things that other funds have to wrestle with and it is very hard so the delight was having a board that was all private sector people with limited external interference and having that board give a lot of freedom to the management team to define strategy and investment decisions how did you think about managing the fund itself there's three ways of making money out of the portfolio, simplistically. One was the sort of long-term portfolio construction. Selection of wh- whether you do it on a factor level, you do it on an asset level, what the broad categories are that you're investing in overall, and, and how you slice and dice that. You know. And as part of that, one of the most, the biggest decisions of always what risk level to take overall. So you know first, what risk level to take, how's that consistent with your liabilities, and then that asset allocation overall. So that, that's number one. Then number two is selection. So once you've defined, for example, that you want private equity in your portfolio, and you've defined how much of it you want, then you need to get into building skill in selecting the right private equity fund or the right private equity deal over the wrong private equity deal. And that security selection builds up that alpha value add. That And that, that's the second way of adding value to the portfolio. And then the third way of adding value to the portfolio is what you mentioned is we used to define as strategic tilting, which was taking a shorter term view that c- certain asset classes or certain things are undervalued and are going to mean revert or go in another direction or overvalued. And so that relative valuation, that macro view is heavily macro driven. I have to say that CPIB had developed and has developed over the years sitting up to my time really good skill in the first two portfolio construction, what level risk take and where to spread the risk in the long term and the security selection across most most of the investment businesses and those where we didn't have great long term security selection we either shut down or restructure and try a different approach but first, the third one on the strategic tilting that We, it was developing. It was a developing skill and very mixed in its ability. And I think I talk to asset owners around the world, it is, it's really hard. And if you get it wrong, you swamp all the benefit of the security selection. If you take an informed bet that, hey, based on very good expectations of, indicators of long-term valuation of the US market, the US market is massively overvalued on a whole bunch of indicators. And you should short the US market dramatically, or even in the short term, you say, a lot of people will say, earnings are gonna be dramatically down this year, and 15, 20%, or we go on and say down 12% if there's a recession. We should be heavily short the US market. But if you take that view, and you're wrong, you could swamp all the returns on the alpha front. So I think as an asset allocator, I wanted to make sure we continue to have those first two skills, and try to develop that third skill without killing ourselves. We try to build macro businesses in-house, with limited success, and are still working on it today. I mean, it may well have cracked it after my time, and without having that macro skill in-house that you could rely on consistently, it's difficult to scale up those ideas at a fund level. Better thing to do is to work with smart partners. So we work with some smart partners on that front who do much, are much time better. Decide how much time to spend on being tactical. So as I combine the roles? for most of my time of both the leader of the organization overall and ultimately the CIO of the organization overall. So I had a a chief investment strategist who worked for me. And then in my last year, I carved out a role of a CIO who was gonna be full-time thinking about these, particularly these type of macro issues. You have enterprise leadership, strategic leadership. You have overall dealing with the board of directors and dealing with all, all the constituents and the public and people across the country and people around the world and then dealing with investment issues. So I led both the top allocation committers that I'd meet with regularly, and I'd lead the deal-by-deal investment committers for the top deals that would come up above a certain threshold. Time split would be, I'd say, about a third a third on the investment side, on the enterprise leadership side, and on the external side. That would probably be, be the split, maybe a little bit more on the investment side.
0: You've seen hundreds of managers over the years. How many do you think are consistent performers?
1: Look, I think outperformance on the public side is really, hard. consistently is really hard. Alpha is really scarce. And I think the on the public side, and one of the reasons we get to talk about the business here, one of the reasons we haven't touched the hedge fund world yet is one, it's even more complex and very difficult without transparency into the funds to know what risks and returns you've got and you're accumulating as you build a hedge fund portfolio. And then secondly, the hedge fund industry is probably more advanced in keeping the best alpha for themselves and parsing out much less of it to, to the average investor, even to the institutional investor. That's a bigger challenge on the hedge fund side. I think on the private investing side, there's more alpha, there's more opportunity for adding value to assets that you control and you own for the longer term. And there's less of that approach. I'm sure it will develop, or is developing over time of keeping the best deals and the best alpha for yourself. But there's less of that in the private investing side. So as an end investor, you do get more of that alpha shared with you before fees. And that's one of the key things to make sure that you're not losing it all through fees or other mechanisms.
0: Well, that leads me to one more question about CPIP. As you move up the buy side ladder in terms of assets, you find that certain things get easier. You get a lot more access and other things become more challenging. As someone who's sat at the top perch, what, how did you find that?
1: We could get a lot of transparency. So CPIB and a big asset owner, you have a large amount of transparency into every single fund that a private manager has ever done, if you want, down to an individual company level, individual company performance level. We build models of every single fund and recut the numbers based on so we really understood exactly what's going on. And then we'd have individual company models for the top holdings of each fund. Extraordinary insight and transparency into the track records and the raw numbers of what people had invested in before, which was great advantage for secondaries investing in particular and gave you great insight into what was bad managers that had built skill you know, or demonstrated real skill in the past that clearly advantageous when you're trying to determine who's good or not and who's likely to be good going forwards. And you know, similarly on the hedge fund side, we had in a lot of cases great transparency into what was owned, and what strategies were on, what positions were on, with great recency. And that was really important, frankly, from a risk management point of view, and knowing what risks you actually have in your portfolio, as well as you roll it up. If you own a $40, $50 billion hedge fund portfolio, knowing where you're compounding risks by, because of all the ownership across all the different funds, or where you're paying for people to put on risk, and it's canceling each other out. definitely you ways. did all this in-house. We did this in-house, yeah. There's yeah. No and I think
0: solution for that.
1: Yeah, that that is yeah. that that is really hard. And as well on the hedge fund side, is one of the challenges. And Cppib struggled for years with a hedge fund portfolio because you need really skilled teams and people and technology and transparency to be able to understand what you've got in these portfolios and all these different strategies to understand what what you're compounding or paying for and canceling out across these different strategies. So that was a, important and really difficult to replicate at a, any type of lesser funded or less a lesser resourced organization. I think on the private side, you can get a long way in making these judgments by the types of tools and techniques that we do on the due diligence side here. And, and we do our own internal due diligence on funds, investment due diligence, operational due diligence. We use external advisors. Uh, we use a couple of, we think, uh, first class external advisors as well to do a second check on everything that we do. And then the final thing is, which is really important and was really important in my old shop, is the checkings where you check with a whole variety of people in your networks as to, okay, what have I missed that you may have come across? And so checking in the asset owner network or venture capital, we see Joe Longsdale ABC have a particularly differentiated network within venture capital and there you can get a sense of it's high. When markets have been up for years, it's hard to differentiate luck from skill unless you've actually sat next to someone or opposite them or on a board with someone or in an investment with someone or a turnaround situation, then you really you get a much better fingertip feel as to who knows what they're talking about and who's actually got skill versus just being lucky. How long does it take to develop a relationship like that? With someone and figure out whether they've got skill or not on the venture side? It could take, could, I guess it depends. I think years to know whether investment's going to actually work out over time from the investment decision, the management of the position through the successful exit is years. And seeing that consistently over a few times, not just one-off, but seeing how people do it over time, seeing the ones that work well, seeing the ones where it didn't work well and what happened, what the interventions were and how they how they dealt with that is you need years of being able to figure out that type of, have that type of relationship and figure out whether teams had skill or not. And you can look back over track record. Right? You can look back at you see the numbers and see what people have done, and speak to people who've been in, involved in that. But that's part of the checking. You need to check with people who've known these people for years, may have worked with them, may have worked opposite them, they've been talking to people who were involved around the, some of the troubled situations. Is always interesting as well.
0: What did you think of the World Economic Forum?
1: It's fun. It's a really, it's fun and incredibly intense. We used to set up from Monday. be Monday lunchtime through to friday afternoon like back to back meetings so we do you did do you know, speed dating half hour meeting drink dinner after dinner after and then wake up 7 a.m 6 30 a.m or and then back to back 7 a.m breakfast or back to back to back till midnight 1 a.m and so i'm utterly exhausted by the end of the week no you so we, didn't get any skiing in so if you go the weekend before or uh, depends on how how intense you are on it if you're just going and just want to goof around, then you can go out skiing. <laughs> but if, if you do that sort of back-to-back, if you're actually trying to work for a pension fund, you know, I, felt I was obligated to get, if we're going to spend the money to go there, to actually get value for it. So I was going working as many hours as I possibly could in that five-day period. And what is the main value of these meetings? It's incredibly getting people from all over the world. It saved a huge number of random trips. So I meet people from Peru. Yeah, I meet people from Australia. I meet people from all over Asia. You meet all sorts of people. And then the conversations you have with people are much more, even though you're speed dating, people are much more open to talking. They're not as uh, guarded as in other situations. And and then I'd look at the list. I mean, how many people there are this year? I'd see all the sort of corporates that we might do business with, like CEOs, and people who I thought might be interesting strategic partners for investment for us. I had various cold calls that led to investments years later, a couple of years later. And and then lots of investment partners and then I was quasi government and government things.
0: So tell us about your current project Opto. Tell us how you met Joe Lonsdale and how this idea germinated.
1: Yeah. So I met Joe through mutual friends in Canada almost as soon as I dropped my bags on moving to Canada to take over that president and CEO position as CPIB. And I was invited to a social weekend where with some people, and Joe was there as part of the group of people. Also Eric Poirier, who's the CEO of Adipar, happened to be there as well that weekend. And so we we met, we got on. I was thinking about some of the missing strategies and insight that we had at CPIB at the time. And One of those was the growth equity and venture capital, where we were not very strong in. We, we built the private equity business that was very focused around the traditional LBO business. And actually, it'd been a, it'd been a deliberate decision of CPIB to do that back in the sort of mid-2000s when CPIB had started direct investing, and there was a view at the time that venture capital is not scalable. That was one of the primary reasons. Funds are small. Even if we have an amazing relationship with Sequoia, we'll get a $5 million investment. We're we're going to be running $500 billion. It doesn't make sense. So forget venture capital. By the time I took over, obviously things got bigger, venture capital was much bigger, growth equity was certainly much bigger, and I felt we were missing out on insights in innovation and seeing developments much later than we should do as a leading investor in the world. So I wanted to push into getting those insights and investing in funds that funds and businesses, but particularly on the venture capital fund side, I want to start a program where we'd invest in funds and we get insights into where they'd open the kimono and share insights with us. So we wanted investment returns and we wanted open kimono on those two dimensions. Anyway, so it was something I was interested in pushing. Joe and I started talking about innovation and and investing. We actually never invested in an AVC, but I did start a San Francisco office. I did start the Venture Capital Investing Fund program. And every time I go to San Francisco, if I had time, Joe was there, I'd drop in and we'd have a breakfast, lunch, dinner and discussion on stuff. And frankly, most of the time we were talking about other aspects of innovation where he was investing, not the alternative space. And it was only sort of late in, I guess, late in 2020 where we got into a discussion about this business. And Joe's had a passion for the alternative space and broadening the access to first-class alternatives for people for years. And it's one of the reasons why he started Adapar on the reporting and analytics front. I started Andowin on the better subscription documentation process and a whole series of other companies that he started around the space. Anyway, he called me and said he was thinking of this new company that would be a solution for wealth managers to get access to all the types of things that I had the privilege of having access to at CPIB. Would I be interested in being an advisor? Would I be interested in maybe taking a part-time position? And over the course of 2021, I got into a deeper and deeper discussion and met some of the folks who were here starting the business. And I thought, yeah, this is really interesting. I could this could be the next thing that I dive into. And and it's I think it's it's a massive. And exciting opportunity for it's the last untapped place for for alternatives, particularly on the private investing side where mm-hmm. there's a lot of capital that's just in some ways misallocated. It's just missing out on this opportunity and it's the pro- private wealth and savings of people across this country, which is where we're focused initially, missing out on that opportunity almost the CPIB was missing out on that growth and innovation perspective and access. When I sat in the seat in 2016, same thing with most American savings are under allocated to all the innovation and growth that happens in this economy. It misses out on those private companies and private investing. And th- th- this is, that's the problem we're trying to solve here.
0: So there is a huge amount of money in private wealth, very little of which is in alts. It's probably like three or 5%. Yeah. And there's certainly been a lot of talk about wall of money coming into alternatives. But why do these platforms make sense now? What's changed? I think
1: one thing that's changed is the traditional portfolio allocation of a simple 60-40-ish bond, uh, equity bond construction, which has been a decent return vehicle for years. And people have heard every year, oh, it's dead, it's dead, it's dead. It's turned out to be fine until last year. And then it was painfully obvious that it wasn't sufficient and both were down a lot. And therefore, the importance of a broader diversification of your portfolio is it was starkly obvious last year. 6040 returns may come back a bit, but I think there's, there's no substitute for having more diversification in your portfolio, more exposure to parts of the economy that are not available in public markets. And I think in a world of lower returns, it's quite likely that we're going to have a world of lower returns than we certainly had in the last 10 years. The value of that alpha over and above what you can get in public markets that you can create in private markets by the longer ownership, by the levers of control that you have in a private situation, that becomes much more valuable on a relative basis as well. That's why I think it's important that more private wealth has access to these opportunities i think that's what's that's what's changed what problem are you solving for those players so the focus at the moment is on the independent ria we are working with some of the aggregators some of the people who are rolling up these rias i think the sweet spot for us is an ria that thinks it's not a good use of their capital to spend on building in-house sourcing and expert teams on alternatives. And we can be that efficient team for them. We can do a huge amount of the sourcing work. We can use all of our networks and expertise to figure out who do we have conviction in venture capital, in private equity and real estate and infrastructure and private credit. We can do that work as five sleeves. So it goes venture capital is one sleeve, but we're doing yeah private equity, real estate, infrastructure and private credit as well. So all the sleeves of private investing. And What we wanna be is customized and differentiated. We're entirely on the side of the independent RIA. We're trying to help them do a better job with their clients to try and help them think about what is the most appropriate exposure to these sleeves of alternatives based on what they own already. We can do portfolio construction and modeling and help them think about, okay, so you own this is what, a exposure to alternatives would do to your your risk, return, your leverage, your liquidity. These are the, this is what all the complexion of your portfolio. This is what we'd recommend you do over some period of time. And here's some building blocks, first class building blocks that we have available that you can use to build that portfolio for your client. So that's what we're building. We have some terrific relationships with some of the aggregators who see the value in that for a lot of the independent RIAs that they've invested in. There's one group that we'll make an announcement on shortly that is one of the biggest investors in RIAs in the country, has about 60 RIAs they've invested in. And we have a strategic relationship with them, uh, helping to introduce us to all of their RIAs, they've done their diligence and all the different alternatives that are out there of, of, of our type of platform, and have decided that we're the, the best of the lot. And because we're entirely focused on the RIA and best solution for their clients, we're working with them to try and onboard as many of those sixty as possible and work with them. I think if you are a a massive RIA that wants to build your own in-house team and wants to build a big expert team sourcing and structuring your own alternatives, then we'd be delighted to work with them and supplement their team. We think we can add value. But our initial focus is on the folks that would rather keep a slim in-house team and work with external experts who can help them. And that's where we come in.
0: So where's where's the competitive advantage here? I'm imagining that it's number one, access, and number two, Technology. Does that and make it, sense? Yeah, they're two of the most important ones. So we, we
1: have, it's not just access. I mean, it, it's also being do you able have to- have inventory? Serve, Is it a- Yeah, so we do. So we're using our capital. We took $100 million of our capital raise. We capitalized a warehouse and we use that to pre-commit to funds. So we can bridge timing gaps for people. So we have today, we have funds across these sleeves available for RIAs to invest. So you're not going to be uh, filling sleeves. out a lot of forms. So, yeah, we want to also take away a lot of the operational complexity and just make it joyful technology, click of a button, the easy subscription forms once you fill out one. You don't need to be pre-populated if you use it again for your client. Trying try to make that uh, everything as smooth and simple and as end-to-end as possible. And that's, So that's the technology we built. And we've been able to hire extraordinary engineers from from a whole range of backgrounds of people, particularly given Joe's aura as having been a co-founder of Palantir and Par and many other companies. People want to come here to be with other leading technologists. And so I've uh, been a technology first, having fresh technology. We believe we got some of the best that's out there or the best that, that's out there. But yeah, so it's differentiation. What we're offering is not a lot of what's available on our platform, you're not going to find anywhere else. It's customized. It's not just one size fits all. It's not, we're not coming along and saying, hey, here's a great big fund, of funds, and just buy it because, you know, we think it's good for everybody. We're trying to, we're allowing the advisor or the investor to determine what is right for them. And and we have a high conviction and we have, we put our own capital behind these funds initially here where we backstopped all the commitments to these funds. And then we're totally aligned on the way we get paid. We're getting paid, only by the RIAs and end client. And most of our economics will come from a small incremental piece of carry, which will only kick in if the funds perform over a certain hurdle. And for the only make money if, you know, what we said, you know, what we had a high conviction and actually turns out to be the right call. So we have full alignment, we think, on the economics front as well. And so we're finding that's resonating quite a lot with people.
0: So I have to ask the obligatory AI question, do you think AI has any effect on this
1: space? I think it does over time, but one of the last interviews I did, fireside chats I did when I was at CPIB was with Mark Andreessen. I spent 90 minutes chatting with him, and I asked him this question on, in, on the venture capital space in particular, I'm expecting him to be a huge technologist, so I'm expecting him to be a huge bull on AI. And he said it was an absolute waste of time so i don't know whether you ever listen to this podcast and come back and criticize me for saying that but he said the judgment around people is so important and it's it is impossible to get ai to make those judgments the key to ai as we've seen even gpt3 chat gpt3 is training data and you need sufficient training data over sufficient time frames to and as we were talking earlier It takes a long time to see the results on private investing and to have enough time series, the machine to learn. I was really keen at CPIB and I was very passionate about trying to use the data insights we saw across all the sort of 65 different investment strategies we had, the amazing insights we had into private company performance, private asset performance around the world, and use those to to implement in investment decisions or inform and make better judgments on investments and i think some of the things i put in place i've been pleased to hear from my ex-colleagues they it made it was really built into they are actually working and they're getting great insights so i think it, yes ai will ai as a decision-making tool will over time inform better judgments and better decisions for people i think it's another. Uh, with great respect to Mark Andreessen, disagree with him. And maybe he's changed the view, but I think it will happen over time. And I think it's something that I'd really like to see us building as part of our engine, but it can't substitute for... It's got to be a supplement to better decision-making rather than being, you know... I don't think you can just do it on its own. And I just don't think that the training data is sufficient and clean enough to, to just run it by machine. But, but it's going to come. And Generative AI for seeing content, I think is something that everybody's going to be using.
0: Do you think there's a Robin Hood type moment in this space where even an accredited investor could just go online and buy shares in venture or buy shares in PE? Two things
1: that y- your question, Trace, one is, I think, the bet w- that we're taking or the, the, con- the view that we have is that when it comes to alternatives, when it comes to private investing, most people... Would like the help of a professional advisor when they're thinking about how much to allocate, what to allocate to. It's not a world that most people grow up with and understand. And it is, it's tricky, it's difficult. And so we think 90, 95% of people, unless you've been in finance, unless you've been in investing, most people are unlikely to click on a phone, click on your phone and buy the next fund from whichever fund group on the private side. You're going to want, somebody's going to want to put it in context, understand the myriad of other funds and other alternative investments, where you should, what you should be selling to fund that, to think about structure and fees and things. So our view is the wealth advisor is not going away. And so here to stay, and we'd like to help them do a better job of investing. So that's one thing. The second thing is it, it does I think liquidity in privates is controversial, frankly, because one of the practical benefits of private investing is putting the money into the hands of someone who is skilled, if you're making the right decisions, and who's gonna be patient in investing that over a period of time, and not panicking when things are down, and not getting euphoric when things are up, but is a skilled, experienced investor who's gonna pace their investment over time. The challenge with having liquidity mechanisms is it takes away that saving you from yourself and you can end up panicking and selling at the wrong time or buying at the wrong time. The other thing is that there's an inherent cost involved in that. There's going to be a spread. There's going to be some discount that you're buying or selling at. And that's going to be big, particularly where private assets are involved. And also there's going to be gates, as we're seeing right now in in some of the big liquid product, supposedly liquid product. And so that spread, that cost is gonna take away all the benefit and more that you are getting from investing in private. When I say the benefit of investing in private is you get this incremental value add over what you can structure in public markets, this incremental alpha, this incremental value add that you can get from the long-term control and the levers of control that you have in the businesses and assets. You it's a finite amount and whatever percent that is, It's highly likely that you're going to destroy a lot of that by more more than all of it by trading in and out of private assets. So I I understand why people, I think what we offer is uh, access to liquidity if you want it, if you need it. But I advise people, if they're going into private assets, you should only put a portion of the money in, plan for Just think about what could happen over time where you might need liquidity elsewhere and make sure you're not overexposed to private investing. But don't go into it planning to trade in and out of it because then you'll, that'll be a mistake. So going to your point, do we end up there where people are trading in and out of private? I wouldn't advise that. And I think the B2C is
0: fine for people who've been in the industry who know what they're doing, but I think it's a limited market. We've been talking today with Mark Machin, CEO of Opto. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your insights with us today. But thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And Thank you for letting me talk about my formative years. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.